Hey, good morning. You're listening to Breakfast Bites, and I'm Felicia King. And today I have special guest, Breach Attorney, Spencer Pollock, with me. And Spencer, what firm are you with now? Good morning, Felicia, and thanks for having me. I'm with uh, McDonald Hopkins. Now, isn't McDonald Hopkins uh, one of the few uh, firms who's accepted on 100% of the cybersecurity insurance panels? Yeah, I I would say there's probably... There's about seven firms out there that are widely accepted, right? There's a couple of exceptions, I think, for each firm. You know, a couple of carriers are stubborn, whichever it is. But in general, and there's about seven of us, about 250 attorneys that are actually approved to do post-incident work. So that that's a salient point because the last uh, conversation you and I had, one of the questions that I asked you was about what was the most valuable thing that a a customer could do with their breach attorney. And your answer was to pre-consult you, to get prepared. And so that those preparation services or that kind of preparation retainer and that pre-engagement stuff, um, that's probably not covered by the cybersecurity insurance company. However, I would argue that by someone actually engaging you proactively, uh, they're probably just heading off a problem at the pass. Yeah. And I, well, I would say having a conversation, right? Even for someone who, like me who's approved on all the panels or someone who's not approved on panels, it's going to be a free consult, at least for us. I mean, I, I, I assume other attorneys do a free consult in terms of meet and greet. Like, hey, how are you doing? This is what right. our background is. This is what we kind of do. Obviously, if you want us to do services for you, that's different. But I, I stand by what I said before. I think one of the most important and easy to do things and least tapped into is making a phone call and having a conversation with someone like me. Calling your cyber insurance company and asking them who's on their panel and vetting a couple of us. I always tell people when they talk to me, hey, call two or three others, right? Because the last thing I want too is for us to get into an incident, you not like me, you not like my personality, whatever it is. Maybe you have a better fit with someone else. It's never personal to me. But you want to have synergy, right? So you want to know who you're working with. Um, It's just like any else day to day. You want to trust who you're working with. You want to make sure they're baked into your preparation. But it's such some, it's an underrepresented feature that we just don't see happening enough. Well, part of that, you know, baked in preparation that we talked about on our last uh, podcast together was around really getting the customer to know what it was that they needed to have prepared for you and have you look at that in advance and be familiar with it and identify gaps in that documentation or that data collection proactively so that that gap could get corrected. So when poo-poo hit the fan, then you would actually have all the data that you needed to hit the go phase. Yeah, exactly. And I, I look at it as preparation and team. Right. And the team is not just the internal IT department. The team is your internal IT, your C-suite, your Felicia's, your Spencer's, and everybody getting together beforehand and saying, all right, here's our incident response plan. And here's what we're going to do with it. Right. If it happens, we run through everything. You do a tabletop Uh because if I come in and I don't know Felicia, right. And your role then me and you have to get on the same page pretty quickly. And that's hard to do, but you're so important to organizations that we work with. That I tell anybody, I'm like, I need to meet the equivalent of their Felicia, right? I need to understand them. They need to understand me. They need to understand that I'm not looking to get them fired. I need, it's same with your internal IT, internal general counsel. 
I'm sure with you, when you're dealing with their internal IT, it's the same kind of, we're not looking to get you fired, but we need to prepare, right? We need to all get on the same page. So show me your policies. If your policies have those gaps, we're going to work with you. We're going to work with Felicia. I keep using you, but the quote unquote, the Felicia's of the world. Mm -hmm. Um, I am the one and only. (laughs) You are the one and only. I I don't disagree with that. There is only one of you. Um, But working with you and working with the client to really understand their their streamline, their work process, their workflows, their pain points, their strengths. Because, and it's all baked into these policies. The big one's an incident response plan. That's always the big one for us. And then it's kind of built out from there. Like, because then that bleeds into data retention, data disposal, data inventory, classification, risk assessment, everything bakes out of that, right? But that's a core of policy that yeah. I always so, Yeah, so let's pivot a little bit onto this topic of, of, uh, of policies. So I find that, so, so first off, it's my belief as a CISO that the organization's information security personnel can really only execute a policy. So where there is no policy, then you have uncertainty, you have things being done haphazardly, nobody's really sure what the standard is, there may be like an informal policy, and you know, some people know what the informal policy is and others, you know, Mm -hmm. and ultimately, if you sit down with a risk assessment, and you just have got diddly squat for policies, you're in the hole. So I feel like, lack of actual written, accepted, approved, and disseminated policies is the number one gap that pretty much every organization out there has. So what kind of a a workflow do you think is is effective that you should be getting included in with regards to policy development just across the board? You know, user acceptance policy, um, data retention policy, data classification, et cetera. Is it, is it a matter where internal IT makes a draft and then it goes to, you know, through that, you know, C-suite and once they've kind of approved it, are you the final checkoff on that? So what I tell people is I don't think internally you should do this yourselves. I, I think you should incorporate, look, self-serving or not, you should be incorporating me and Felicia, right? The, once again, I'm selling you, but an MSP, an MSSP, which, you know, whichever independent check, right? Because if you're drafting it internally, you're going to be missing a lot of these things that we're going to see yeah. from the external. Yeah. I, I, and, and when I say IT, I think where I was going at it was, you know, we do almost exclusively co-managed IT basically. Yes. So, so as the engaged CISO for the client, I would write the first draft. Okay, okay, yeah. That's a different yeah. scenario. Yeah. Yes. I would write the first draft IT would yes. take a look at it. You know, it, it kind of mills around inside the organization. And then at the point in time that the executives are like, yeah, we, we think we want to send this to, to, you know, council now. So it seems like that point in time, that's when they're like, you know, we're okay with the way that this is internally. Spencer, what are we missing? Right. Is that the right engagement level? I think it should be earlier on because okay. what I found is like, if you get us engaged too late, then it's almost sometimes it's a massive rewrite and you already have buy-in is so hard already. Right. So then if you get buy-in without, it's almost like when lawyers are writing their own incident response plans at times without the buy-in of a, the technical security expert. And then a technical security expert comes and sees my draft. And this has happened before. And they're like, nah, I don't like this. I don't like this. So all of a sudden I have buy-in, but now the client's like, well, come on, like what's happening. It's too clunky. Right. And people just want things now. 
So what I tell clients is this has to be a uh, streamlined, almost synthetic like combination, right? Symbiotic relationship where it happens immediately, where we work in tandem, right? We pass back drafts back and forth saying, okay. here's, here's the security gaps. Here's our secure. Here's our escalation point. Just using an IRP again, incident response plan. Um, here's our escalation point. What do we do with that? And then I'm like, okay, now we're in notification phase. This is when we get the FBI involved. Or I'm like, all right, so now we're completely encrypted on the, you know, Felicia on the technical side, where should we really be advising the client to preserve the evidence too? So then you get the both thought processes together. When then uh -huh. it makes it to the C-suite, you're presenting that united front mm. to them for the best product available. Okay. Okay. So, okay. So based upon that feedback, um, the way I would be thinking about it then is I would still come up with the first draft because I know the institutional knowledge of the client. You know, I know what technical controls they have in place. I kind of know the, you know, the personnel. I know I can interface with the HR really well, um, mm -hmm. you know, those types of things. So I could come up with that first draft and maybe pass it through the IT department. Just make sure IT is like, you know, not seeing any major issues. Then it should be going to uh, with you. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, that gets reconciled and then it actually goes to, to C-suite for approval. Yeah. So it's like when I bring in, I think the order is perfect too, right? Okay. But it like, it can get flipped if I'm the first one in the door and mm -hmm, then, I bring mm -hmm. someone, cause then I'll do the first draft where I, I have escalations, but I'm always hesitant to get too deep into escalations without technical and security, right? Because that's just not my lane of like identifying, remediating, containing. Well, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, I think probably a lot of people you interact with don't have, a, you know, like a certified VC, so either. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. So working with you then, so then the order to me, as long as they're both incorporated the front end before it gets to the C-suite, because okay. the last thing I like, it gets to the C-suite and then they're like, we're done. And then they hear someone like me come in and they're like, you're just trying to bill hours. That's all well, they say. I, it, but but I mean, you, you bring up a really salient point and, and I'll just say it in a different way that really what the C-suite wants and is that they want a five minute presentation and they want you to indicate to them what is the decision that you need them to make. You're mm -hmm. not asking them to, you know, you're not asking, you're not telling them what the answer is. You're saying, I need you to make a decision, yes or no on X, Y, Z, right? Yeah. And and that's what we need to be expecting C-suite to do is to make a decision based upon a curated, condensed data point. Exactly. Yeah. And I it's mean, presenting a streamlined and what you said is right. It's like five minutes. Yeah. Whenever I get a presentation, when somebody presents to me, it's longer than five minutes. I'm like, you know, I lost you after about four and a half. The last <laughs> 30 is the key part to keep me engaged. But you're right. Five minutes, give me what we need. They've got a million things going on. They already don't like to talk about security. They already don't like to talk about compliance. So just streamline it for them, make it really easy, bake yeah. it out and say, this is what we're going to, this is how you should do it. A, B, C, D, E, F, let us know. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, So I wanted to get an update from you as to what trends you are seeing in the sense, you know, the last six months here, how has, um, What's shifted? What's changed? What's happening now in the uh, incidents that you're getting involved with? And, you know, what can you share with us in terms of so we can learn to not fall prey or be victim to such problems? 
So I think we really see it act, seen an increase in the regulatory and class action environment. I mean, we're involved well, that's in a couple. Interesting. We're we're involved in a couple, a bunch of class actions, but also a couple of regulatory investigations where it's multi-state, and these are not highly regulated industries either, um, and it's not huge numbers, right? It's not millions upon millions. I mean, it's in the hundreds of thousands, but still, we haven't really seen cross-state investigations coming together. Uh, and I, I do think moving forward, attorney generals are going to look at this and be like, we need to start pairing up. Because if you imagine, if you just have one person in Maryland and I'm impacted, that gives the Maryland AG in their mind jurisdiction over you. Now, there's arguments, but the truth is you never want to get the court on these arguments. It's just too expensive. So I do feel like these regulators are going to start looking at each other and be like, we are a lot more powerful if we pair up, you know, you got 20 in Pennsylvania, you got 40 in California, you got 10 in Maryland, whatever numbers. Let's all work together and then let's hone in. It's like the opiate settlements, right? Everybody came together. And I think with data privacy, we're going to see that more and more. Class actions, plaintiff attorneys are looking at this like blood in the water because huh. they can see that none have gone to court because everyone's scared. So we put out one where it was a notification of 10 people. And I've got two plaintiff attorneys advertising about it. I mean, it's disgusting. Oh, my. Yeah, it's disgusting. I won't get into my personal opinions about that. But... So so you, what I heard you say was uh, data breaches mm -hmm. that, um, that were reportable, that affected uh, PII, mm -hmm. uh, potentially financial, potentially, you know, basically Social some- drivers, Yeah, medical. So, some sort of regulated data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, non-public. Okay. Non-public information, yeah. NPI, non-public information, protected health information, anything you can't find on Google that can cause financial harm, identity theft, or embarrassment. Yeah. Uh, so interesting uh, question this leads me to. In those circumstances, how many of those incidents that you're aware of could have been completely avoided by utilizing the proper data encryption technology so that when it was exfiltrated, that it was useless. 90%. Fascinating. Uh, 10% where we've had, I've had a couple where they got the, it was encrypted, but they got the key too. Because Ooh. the key, well, the key wasn't secure, right? Oh. I think it I don't, I mean, it was like, a. It, this was only a couple of times. Because if you're encrypted and they don't get the key, it's not reportable because Correct. under the law, it, I mean, it makes sense. If I've got full yes. encryption and, but there's so many, as you know, like, and I'm talking to an expert on this, there's so many different ways of encryption. And is it really encrypted? Is it encrypted at rest? Well, encrypted well see, that this is why I asked, because I think uh, in, a, in a, quite a lot of data breaches, you know, what you're really talking about is a situation where, Let's say uh, something did a supply chain risk, a uh, supply chain attack against a SQL server, for example. Mm -hmm. So now you've got something that's like interacting with the database. And unless there was egress filtration preventing that data from egressing out through the WAN interface, um, then, you know, hey, the, the database is live, right? It's spun yeah. up, it's, it's accessible. And now it's just going to shoot data out, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. So if, so even if you had that SQL server encrypted at rest, that doesn't mean anything, right? Because no. it got booted up and the data's live, right? So how do we mitigate that risk is, is appropriate supply chain risk management at the network yeah. layer. 
Um, and it's also the, you know, with the global admins, right? You get a global admin and global admin credentials, mm -hmm. which is pretty easy to get through tools like Mimikatz and whatnot. Well, that's a big problem because you can have encryption, but I've got the key already at that point to get in and then I can take your data. I mean, you've got a lovely paperweight if someone steals that hard drive, but I think that's the other issues that we really get led into of password protection at, you know, yeah. really protecting admin controls. So, but I think good encryption, look, if you're encrypted and they don't get the key, then it doesn't matter. Then my job so for you is pretty easy. How many, uh, have you seen any circumstances where Azure information protection was actually fully deployed and, and in place? No, usually we're, usually we're recommending to migrate to an Azure or a better cloud-based kind of environment. I, I think people are still running with the basic controls, right? I think the, the Azure environments and whatnot, I think they're more expensive, obviously. Well, you know, just, just to be clear what I mean by Azure Information Protection. So Azure Information Protection is a service that you can turn on for OneDrive, for your email, mm -hmm. for um, SharePoint. You could actually use it for your premise servers too. And it's basically a licensing component and then you set up automatic data classification. And as part of that automatic data classification, it says, okay, well, this is marked confidential. So we're going to encrypt it automatically and it automatically gets tagged as confidential. So if you as an end user open it up, it says, you know, confidential. And then, you know, if you have an employee who sticks in a flash drive and they copy it there, or let's say they email it to themselves to their personal email and they try to like open that file some other place, they can't because it's only decrypted on the fly by an active Azure Active Directory licensed user with a current valid login, you know, like their, their account hasn't been disabled and that sort of thing. So um, I, I'm not all in love with workloads hosted in Azure because I feel like the vast majority of people don't understand how to secure cloud effectively. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so it makes uh, the attack surface a, a little bit bigger. But Azure information protection is something that's available to anybody that has M365. And you can actually integrate that with your premise servers too. But then isn't a lot of it too with the classification that you have to have somebody actually going on to hit that classification button to sit. No, that's why I talked about the automatic data classification rules. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, for example, um, I could make a rule that says every file that Felicia creates is confidential. But what about the other employees that it's not going to be universal, but stuff is coming in? Like, let's just say you have, I don't know, Secretary A, somebody starts sending in socials, stuff like that. And so you start storing socials. It's not going to automate. Obviously, look, if I have CEO and everything that's coming in, likely it's going to be confidential. But then you also get, yeah. have to get buy-in because that also is probably going to get annoying for someone that I agree with you. But I, I do feel well, like there, it's a lot of human component though, too. Well, there, there are add-on products that you can buy, which are, let's say, about $6,000 a year that will do fully, 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 really detailed uh, automatic data classification, but it still is just, it's a rider on top of the built-in functionality that exists in, in M365. Yeah. And, and I, I haven't seen anything that's actually more effective than that, right? I mean, I haven't seen any other really, you know, DLP technologies, because that's really what we're talking about here, right, is data loss protection. Mm -hmm. You want to make sure that the right authorized people can access what it is that they need to access when they need to, and that that data, if it is exfiltrated someplace else, it becomes a useless brick. 
Yeah, exactly. Any way you can get this encrypted, any way that you can protect it when it leaves your environment, obviously is the key goal. Yeah. In all of this. Because I mean, then if, you don't Yeah, I mean, for it. let's just say for Azure information protection, you don't even have to classify things. You could just say, hey, encrypt everything. <laughs> you know, you could just say encrypt everything. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so, Okay, so that that was really interesting, and uh, I did not expect you were going to say regulatory and multi-state class actions. That's that's very interesting. Now, I, I did talk to another um, a gentleman who, uh, specifically uh, the president of Security Studio, recently, and uh, it was his prediction that uh, the the next thing that's really going to be happening is the regulators are going to start to do some pretty intensive enforcement. So so he's seeing. You know something similar to what what you're seeing, and and I was talking to him about um, the challenges that I think exist. Uh, you know, certainly you look at every single tax preparer that's out there. Oh, the yeah. majority of them do not have the security that they need. Uh, the majority of them don't even believe that they are that they need to be compliant with, for example, the FTC safeguards rule or you know the, the IRS GLBA IRS data breach rules. Yeah, I mean they. CPAs are one of the most vulnerable, and you're right, because the, they almost feel like they're a separate, they don't think they're financial services, I think, personally, but obviously they are. So, Well, I, I think that they think that there is no enforcement. That's exactly. the problem. Yeah, that's the other problem. Yeah. Okay. And it, there definitely is. It, it's, it's not that they don't think it applies to them. It's that I think that they think they can get away with it because there's no enforcement. Yes. Well, I think a lot of people think that because you don't hear about the enforcement a lot in the news. And I think moving forward, you're going to start hearing about it more and more because one, the more lawsuits you get, the more you're going to hear about it. Two, Mm. the more regulatory actions, the consent actions, enforcement actions. And a lot of it's going to come down to what you did beforehand, right? It's not the actual breach that is going to get you. I mean, look, you're going to get in trouble. You have a breach, but. Right. What you're saying is if you did not, proactively take action to create a defensible posture, then you're not demonstrating due care and due diligence. And that could be, you know, deemed to be uh, malfeasance and negligence. negligence. And there's no case law. So it's like when you don't have case law to support you and back you up, like we don't have, I don't have any legal arguments, unfortunately. I don't have like, there's not a criminal case ball, case book that's got all this laid out. There's very minimal. So what I tell clients, I'm like, you better be giving me a story to tell people. You better have a really mm. good story. And it's not a multi-million dollar story. It's whatever Spencer's widget shop, size, scope, and complexity. You're judged against Felicia's widget shop or John's widget shop, whatever it is, right? But you better be doing reasonable things because if not, these regulators, they dig. I mean, I can't even tell you between like Indiana, New York, California, I mean, OCR, the questions we get are long and extensive and they want policies. They want to see what you're doing. And so what I tell people, I'm like, if you don't have it legally compliant and you don't have it technically sound, if you're not looking at the three safeguards, right? Administrative, physical, technical. Physical is the easiest thing in the world. If you're not locking your doors and I'm not, uh, don't hire me, please. But administrative, you better have a lawyer helping you. And then technical, you better have somebody on the technical security side, right? The virtual CISOs, the MSSPs, whatever, the MSPs. You better have somebody who's dedicating their lives to both of these to make sure you can tell a story. So, all right, you you said some things that just really deeply resonated with me. And I want to to reiterate, recap them because of how critical they are. 
Number one, policies. Mm-hmm. Because if the organization hasn't even sat down and created policies on anything, then, you know, how serious were they taking technical controls or frankly, anything else, right? I mean, they've got to start with policies. And, you know, one of the things that I've been doing for my clientele is I found by a miracle of God, I found a wonderful assessment tool uh, that I can deploy for everybody because it's so cost effective. I'm just thrilled about it, right? And I can, because of my institutional knowledge about a client, I can go through that assessment in, you know, a first draft in like two hours. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's pretty good, right? Yeah, yeah, and, that's really good. And, and I can get a, a preliminary score and then utilize that to facilitate discussions with the client, such as like, hey, what's your cash register? Right. Let's just look at your cash register in your business and what exposure do you have to the cash register? Because if the cash register isn't working, you're out of business. Right. And then and then you can start to prioritize improvements to that. But so back to what you were saying, policies, number one. And as part of that, the policy is telling a story. The policies are saying this is what we intended. This is what we planned. This is how we're doing checks and balances. This is what our standards were. And it is that story. And the more complete the policy set is, the more competency is conveyed, the more demonstration of due care and due diligence. And I I feel like the number one problem that these many of these organizations have is they think that this is an IT problem. And it's not an it's a business problem. Yes. And, you know, IT can't come into your business and say, here, here's all these policies, because the first problem is that the business owner doesn't, when they are not the driver of it, when they don't understand the necessity for policy, they don't want to pay for it, right? And it costs money to make policies. It takes time. Yes, we have templates, but everything has to be customized to the needs of that individual customer. Yeah. The template aspect, really, I love that. I'm like... They're like, can't we just Google this? I'm like, yeah, go have fun. Yeah, I mean, you're going to get a lot of mixed results with that. I mean, I'm very fussy about the templates that I use, right? So, um, but you still customize, right? That's that's. Oh, I customize the heck out of it. Yes. No, no. So I obviously look. We've got a we've got a outline. We've got our a template. When I say template, I mean like you go on LegalZoom. Oh, I know. Yeah. That that's that's where I want to throw up because I'm like somebody said that to me once. I'm like, good luck. Well, there, yeah, there are some products that I will leave nameless um, and and they are in the MSP space and they purport to be able to present people a bunch of policies and, you know, and they sell, hey, you know, we'll give you a bunch of policies for your customers. And, and you know, I, on my team, I have three CISSPs and, you know, we've all looked at those policies and basically barfed all over them and went like, you know, this is insufficient. We don't, you know, so we're not interested in those no. templates. No. Um, but so then now the, the next thing is you said that I thought was fascinating is you're talking about how the so that number one thing that when that uh, when an issue occurs, the first thing that somebody goes and asks for is what were you doing? What's your story? Tell us your narrative and it better be coming from your policies. Now, if I take that a step further, something else that would support that would be uh, some risk assessment documentation. And you would hope that part of that risk assessment documentation would say, 
these are the policies we have. Um, and this is the state of those policies, because maybe some policies are in in development, some are mm -hmm. all approved. Right. And then how does that correlate with, uh, you know, the technical controls and uh, then the audit controls? Right. You know, so there's there's a start with your policy and what is actually our policy statement or status and then drive that through to uh, the rest of the execution. And and the other thing that you said that I just loved was that. You know, if you don't have the policies and you're not doing the fundamentals, I mean, you might as well just hang it up. Yeah, it's just like what nobody, if you think about it, I just, and I tell clients, I'm like, just put yourself one in an employee position and a client position and a stakeholder, partner, referral base, whatever it is, or a regulator. What would you say if you don't have this stuff in place and it's cost effective and this could have prevented this or this could have mitigated? Right. Tell, you can't prevent a breach, right? You can't. That's fine. You can mitigate. You yeah. could have mitigated this harm if you had just done simple policy development, which then it gets incorporated into your patching, into your logging, into whatever it is, your audit. You know, it. it's just, it is remarkable to me because a lot of times the the administrative side gets pushed aside. You know, it gets pushed to... My hand just got raised. Sorry. Yeah, that that's that's the uh, the new um, video recognition in Zoom is what that is. Oh, that's really cool. Sorry. Um, <laughs> a squirrel. Spencer got caught by a squirrel. Yeah, that, I think it, I, that was an ADD moment. Um, but <laughs> so yeah, it's just it's about reasonableness. That's all I tell people. I'm like these right. laws are new. If you can't, if you don't give me something to show that you're reasonable, it's like going to court without. When I used to be a litigator, a trial attorney, I told everyone, this is a story. We're going to tell a story and I'm going to take apart their story. Regulators want to take apart your story. So we need to be building your story really tightly. Yeah. And the only way I can do that, I can't retroactively build you policies. Right. Once I had a clients tell me, why why didn't they tell us that we needed policies? I said, because I didn't meet you until the breach. Um, <laughs> but when I do meet people and I'm like, even after the incident, I'm like, all right, you didn't have it. That's fine. Let's get going on this. So we can now show someone that, hey, you're right. We didn't have it. But guess what? Look at all the good stuff we're doing. Do it beforehand. And look at all the stuff we're going to improve now because this is what we learned. Right. People, regulators so, want to see that you learned too from an incident. Right. So uh, going back to that, it's, um, it's, it's not just reasonableness. It's the the defensibility of your action because inaction in many cases is uh is not defensible no it's like you can't just say well i didn't know i had to do this that ignorance is not an excuse of the law every law <laughs> says you gotta have reasonable safeguards in place i mean and they leave it pretty vague for a reason because they want to be they want you to prove what's reasonable right so just I, I beg of you, uh, every breach counsel out there, every privacy attorney out there will agree. Please just give us a story to tell. So let, let, let's wrap it up with uh, Tepizorum, you know, third party yeah. information security risk management. Go ahead. Tell, what what are you seeing in the Tepizorum space? Well, I mean, I really just look at this as people are not getting in depth enough with vendors, right? With their third party service providers. Everybody has that Uncle John, Aunt Sally, whatever it is, and they're just so trusting of them. We sign contracts. We don't read contracts, one, right? We don't read terms of service. We don't do due diligence. And what we've seen is vendors are huge, huge vulnerable points. And we, we were talking beforehand about Target. 
what I tell clients is I ask them, do you know who Fazio is? Well, no. And then I go through what happened with Fazio and I would like to target. I'm like, well, guess what? You remember target. You don't remember Fazio. Same thing with you. Spencer's widget shop will be remembered. But if I'm working with Felicia and it started with Felicia, I can't be like, well, it was Felicia's fault. Well, no, my clients don't care. They gave right. me their information. So it's like yep. people are not doing this due diligence. And it's not right. hard due diligence to start. Now, I think you always should do complete. Some of some of it's hard. To be fair, some of it's hard. I think more on the technical side. The policy side for me, I mean, look, it's, well, it's, no, it's difficult based on the conversations and the review, but the companies that are good have like those vendor packets, right? Well, well, I agree. I agree that the part where I've seen it just go apocalyptically bad is like, uh, there's a company called Trimble. Are you familiar with who they are? They've got like 8,000 employees. Okay. So Trimble supplies software to a significant percentage of the transportation industry in the United States. And Trimble has probably at any particular point in time, 200 public facing security vulnerabilities in their infrastructure that they're not really addressing. And they don't have anything in their contracts with their customers or their EULAs or anything else like that that causes them to have an, a, a, an obligation to do vulnerability management, vulnerability classification, or end-of-life software elimination, or SBOM, or anything else like that. And because they are an 8,000-pound gorilla, they don't care. And frankly, they give a middle finger yes. to their customers. So now if your business is running off of Trimble applications, your choice is what? Because yeah. there is no other software that can do what they can do. And this is the part that really irks me. I want to see CISA, you know, or in this case, let's say because it's for the transportation industry, I want to see the DOT come in with some sort of an enforcement action and says, hey, you know, we have this presidential directive that says you need to be doing, you know, SBOM analysis. So you as a software vendor have this litany of, responsibilities to your customers, right? Yeah. So that's the big roadblock I've seen is where customers will try to do to Pizzerum and their software company basically gives them a big giant middle finger. Oh, I tell anybody, you, if you're not, I use an example. One time my customer wanted me to go negotiate with AWS and I was like, well, how much money do you have? And how much time do you want me to dedicate to just yelling at a wall? Because nobody's going to, if you're, I say you have to have equal negotiating power or close to it. So AWS, Google, pretty, pretty similar, right? Spencer's widget job, AWS, not similar. Right? No, it's, it's what's to... called a pathologically one-sided agreement. Oh yeah. And they know it. Like, so with Trimble, it's the same thing. If you don't have, a, if you don't have a consortium basically together, the majority of the users, you're not going to get anywhere with them. And you're right. It's a tough position because then you have yeah. to use their software. So you have to accept it's a business decision at that point. What I tell clients is it's look, practical versus legal security compliance. Right. They never get along ever. Right. right. Legal and security, they get along pretty well. Mm -hmm. Right. Practical, no. The business side, they hate legal and security because yeah. we are impediments to them. And it's right. So then it's a risk analysis of am I going to keep using Trimble? I mean, how am I going to explain this to my clients if something happens? It, just, you can't. You can't get off of it, right? And, and yeah. the, the real squeezer that I've seen is the cybersecurity insurance company is saying, you know, look, your critical infrastructure, you have to do these things. You try to do those things and you get the big giant middle finger from the software vendor. 
So now what you effectively have is you can, the only defensibility that I think that exists in the position then is that you've written nasty letters to Trimble trying to advocate your position, advocate on your behalf. You could potentially say, hey, look, we evaluated these other software options and they don't work. So so again, it, it's what did we do? Did we attempt to do tapizerum? Did we attempt to do, yeah. you know, do, do care, due diligence? And then yeah. we, we found we can't do anything about it. Exactly. Do something, right? Make that attempt. Right. Like, yeah. Try. That's just once it, it, the core theme in my life with anyone I talk to is like, demonstrate reasonableness. Give me a story. If you do not do these things, if you're right, you just put your head in the sand and go, like, oh, whatever, they're too big. Well, it doesn't take too long to send a letter. Correct. It doesn't take too long to send an email. It doesn't take Correct. too long to identify these security problems and say, this is not acceptable. We want this changed. Right. You know, and then acknowledging almost, I would even say at a policy, just you have to be like, we have vetted other companies. There is nothing else out there. Right. This is business critical. We are, we understand that there are these risks. We have tried, we've done XYZ, but we've, we, accept the risk at this point. Right. Yep. And, uh, you know, I'm totally on board with you with that. That's exactly how I try to run these things and execute those. And the challenge that I run into again is that the business is not thinking that this is a business problem. They think it's an IT problem. Yeah. And it puts the IT in a really bad spot. And, and then they, then what they see is they think that IT is the business impediment where they're saying, well, no, we can't do X, Y, Z because doing that would invalidate your cybersecurity insurance policy. Yeah, exactly. And that's, it's, and, it's a rock and hard place. I mean, like, especially in the Trimble situation, right? But yeah. it's what we see more and more. The large scale software providers have a lot of power. I wish we could find out who all their customers are and then you could create a consortium, but that would be pretty difficult to do. I mean, you could hire me and I'll do it for you, but, but I don't know if you want to pay the bill on that one. <laughs> well, I, uh, again, I think there are some of these areas where the federal government is just not doing their job. Yeah. Because, you know, if CISA has these guidelines and they say that, you know, you are critical infrastructure, you ought to be doing these things. How are they actually helping these businesses? Because they're not, you know, you know, you talked about having equal negotiating power. Who can actually move Trimble? The federal government can move Trimble. Yeah, that's the only way you're going to do it. Yeah. But beyond that, it's just accepting the risk. I mean, just it's a risk tolerant position, but you just go through your risk analysis, go through your due diligence, document it, and then sleep as well as you can at night. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I know you got to go in. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, this Thank is a, a, a great update. And I always appreciate your insight as to what's going on out there in breach attorney land. And uh, we, we want to be prepared. That's right. And so, Preparation. you know, Hopefully, uh, folks uh, hearing from your perspective in the trenches will motivate them to, um, well, as you say, to become more defensible. That's right. And I appreciate you having me, Felicia. All right. Thanks a lot, Spencer. All right. Thank you.